a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Great to be with you today. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. As we've been talking about uh, tonight, the presidential season really kicks off in earnest as the Democrats uh, get their four night spectacular, uh, which will be from a secure, undisclosed location. The Republicans will have to do the same next week. Uh, it will be very, very different. And uh, so wanted to get uh, some insight from somebody who understands this and the impact on public opinion and ultimately on the election. And so we want to bring in our, our good friend, independent pollster and uh, tag team partner with the Deseret News and Hinckley Institute of Politics and our polling here in the state of Utah, Scott Rasmussen from Florida, we can say now. Scott, welcome. Oh, that's great to be with you. And it's great to be calling in from Florida. <laughs> it's a uh... Been a, it's been an interesting transition, but, uh, but you know, the election is still coming, whether we're ready or not. And as you said, the convention start tonight. And, you know, this is something that political junkies love, and there's legends about it. But realistically, barring any major gaffes, and I mean major gaffes, these events aren't really going to have an impact on the 2020 election. Yeah, there just doesn't seem to be a, a whole lot. Uh, I mean, I know from the behind-the-scenes uh, moments I've had at uh, conventions over the years, you know, the, the big fear of whoever the nominee is going to be is that someone is going to go off script <laughs> during the convention. Uh, but now they're all pre-recording, uh, so there's, like, no chance we're going to have a, a major gaffe. Uh, but we really haven't had we really haven't had a big impact convention. I, it, it hurts me. I saw this in your article today on DeseretNews.com. Uh, it's been 40 years since there was really a significant battle on a convention floor. That's right. You know, conventions used to really decide the, uh, the nom- who the nominee was going to be. And if you went back to 1960 and read The Making of the President by Theodore White, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Kennedy team working on delegates and making sure he got over the top. But the last time we had a meaningful convention was 40 years ago. It was 1980 at mm-hmm. Madison Square Garden. I was actually there for that one, which makes me feel really old. <laughs> um, but uh, Senator Ted Kennedy was challenging the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, for the Democratic nomination. And uh, Carter had, you know, in the system that we now know, had won enough delegates to wrap up the nomination. Kennedy was convinced they really wanted him. In their hearts, they were really for Kennedy. And so he fought, brought a rules challenge, the very first vote of that convention, and it would have been to free the delegates, to get rid of all those pledges um, and let them vote their conscience. And, and uh, as it turned out, the delegates, the Carter delegates said, no, we like the rules the way they are. The pledge delegates stayed, and that was the end of it in terms of 
that convention fight. And we've never had anything like it since. They became scripted television shows. And, and as you said, every now and then somebody would go off script. But for the most part, they became a television program rather than a significant event. Yeah, and I, I think this year in particular is going to be—it's uh, going to be more like a, a really bad telethon, I think, than uh, than a convention with uh, everyone coming in remote. Uh, the speakers will not be able to deliver all of those, you know, bashing of the other side, uh, one-liners, yeah. red meat pieces. Uh, I think I think it uh, would really love your take on this, Scott. Do the speakers have to think differently? Because I don't think they can get up there and just it, – it's hard. It falls flat if you're just bashing the other side to no raucous cheers or trumpets sounding in the background. Do they have to change? Absolutely they have to change. Uh, uh, you don't have that energy and you don't have that feedback, and it looks very – it's the reason why the response to the president's State of the Union always looks so different than the State of the Union address itself, because you have that different dynamic. Um, and I actually, you know, in that in that 1980 convention, we saw a little precursor of that as well. Uh, Ted Kennedy gave this incredibly impact mm-hmm. speech, and I was in the hall for it. And and I don't even like much of m- many of his policies, but but it was just it, it was captivating. But when you saw it on television. He looked a little more like a wild man. You know, it didn't translate <laughs> television as well as it did to a live audience. And now we're in the next phase of that. Without an audience there at all, when you are simply, you know, giving your speech to a virtual audience, um, you, you do have to change. And the other thing you have to realize in today's world, the only people who are going to be watching are your partisan fans and political professionals. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have a big national audience for these things anymore. Right. Yeah. It used to be just you had the big three uh, TV stations and they covered that. And that was a big deal. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, political speeches at conventions that have kind of changed the game. Uh, help me with one. Uh, the uh, the Reagan post speech with uh, Gerald Ford, where they actually gave the runner up the microphone after the coronation had taken place. I, I, you broke up a little bit on that, so I couldn't hear your question. I heard was something about was it Reagan and Gerald Ford negotiating for Ford to be vice president? No, the uh, no when when uh, Ronald Reagan actually spoke after. Oh, in seventy six. Seventy six. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, and again, this was still an era when when conventions mattered. In that case, Ronald Reagan uh, really did kind of capture the mood of the party, and obviously, he wrote it to victory four years later. Um, but it was, it was a, a convention experience like nothing anybody younger than us can remember today. Um, all of those conventions every year, uh, in 1972, George McGovern was the nominee of the Democratic Party, but because he lost control of the convention, he didn't get to give his acceptance speech until 3 a.m. Uh, when, you know, even in those days with three television networks, there weren't a lot of people watching. Uh, in 1968, there were police riots outside the, the, uh, the convention hall in Chicago. And you had Hubert Humphrey uh, nominated, even though he did not enter or win a single primary. Uh, you know, so this, the storylines of all of those conventions were very real. And that's the era that a lot of political junkies kind of feel nostalgic about. Yeah. They love those stories. Yeah. But, but that's not the way conventions work anymore. We have primaries. We have pledged delegates. 
they should have a bean counter somewhere at the party <laughs> office who simply says, okay, Biden's over the top. He's the nominee. Yeah, exactly. Someone should just uh, declare that and they could they could all move yeah, on. In, in fact, in my column today, Boyd, at, at, at uh, Deseret.com, I, I talk about the fact that, you know, maybe one of the blessings of COVID in this pandemic is they'll finally bring this archaic practice of these conventions to an end. Uh, you know, it's just it's just belongs to another era. Yeah, it, it, it really does. And uh, I thought the uh, I was talking on one of our other programs here with uh, Dave and Dejanovic earlier this morning uh, talking about I think the Democrats made a big mistake already. And that is they they tweeted out a photo of the location where. Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris are going to give their speeches. And it is so sad. It's a hotel ballroom. (laughs) It's like bad 70s carpet and this little tiny stage and a couple of little flags. It's like, no, you need to make this thing look big and powerful and important. I thought, "Uh oh, they've already lost the messaging game early. (laughs) Well, they they have. And I I think um, something larger is being lost. You know, one of the things that, um, again, when conventions mattered, there was a sense of legitimacy given to the winner. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that you had emerged as victorious through either a primary season or through winning over enough delegates, um, that, that gave people confidence that, okay, you know, this person has really gained in stature. Because, quite frankly, uh, if we asked anybody in America today, is Boyd Matheson qualified, qualified to be president, um, you know, you've got a few people who say yes. You know, you have a big family. Yes, I don't think they'd buy into that, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you if you then had gone through the process and won the nomination and you were part of a, a convention experience that really mattered, um, and then you show up to a national audience being you know acclaimed by that group, there is a legitimacy to your nomination that accrues to you. Um, and Joe Biden will not have that this year. Uh, it's almost like he he won the nomination when everybody was focused on the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, he is primarily running as I'm not Donald Trump. Right. Oh, fascinating stuff. Well, we're going to keep tapping into you this week, Scott, as we uh, move through this and on to the Republicans uh, next Monday. We'll see what their four days look like as well. Scott Rasmussen, thanks for joining us on Inside Sources today. Thank you, boy. All right. Uh, you know, to me, it's just so interesting. I love this last point that that Scott made uh, about that ability in a convention to kind of grow in stature. Uh, I think uh, President Obama did that as candidate Obama. And as he took that stage and sort of took that mantle of leadership of the Democratic Party, uh, he'd had a great moment that we're going to come back to a little later in the program today, uh, back in 2004. Uh, where he delivered one of the great speeches of all time at the Democratic Convention. Or you think of George W. Bush, uh, the stature he gained at the convention with the speech he delivered there on that big stage, big crowd, big prime time. Uh, And we just don't have that. And I love the fact that Scott pointed out that that's actually hurting Joe Biden a little bit because he's not going to have that moment where everything kind of comes together. It's like, okay, there he is. He's the guy. He's on uh, really interesting. But we're going to continue to explore the convention. We'll talk about speeches that actually mattered in the convention coming up at 1150. But next, we're going to have Sid Dixon join us. We're going to talk Utah schools coming up here on KSL News Radio. Don't go anywhere.
I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.